Podcastle, episode 332, for October 8th, 2014. Zarakesh in Absentia, by Benjamin Sridhuankau, rated R. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm M.K. Hobson, and today's story is Zarakesh in Absentia by Benjanoon Sriduankau. So today's story reminded me of an interesting TED Talk from 2011, which isn't really saying much given the sheer magnitude and variety of TED Talks that are now out there. This story could be about undead, purple, genderqueer teddy bears, and there'd probably be a TED Talk relating to it. But I digress. The TED Talk, and actually, I probably should keep the branding straight. I should probably say that this was actually a TED Global Talk. I have no idea what the difference is between all these TED Talks, other than this one was global. But anyway, this TED Talk was by physicist Jeffrey West. And in it, he talked about the universal mathematics that govern cities and corporations and how they relate um, to the biological laws that govern scale. So he found that things like wealth, crime rate, walking speed, all sorts of different aspects of a city can be deduced from a single number, and that number is just how big the city is, the city's population. So he's come up with this mathematical model, which he refers to as the 15% rule, which states that as a city's population doubles, and he says it doesn't matter if you double it from 100 to 200 or 10,000 to 20,000 or 10 million to 20 million, then systematically you will get a 15% increase in wages, wealth, number of AIDS cases, number of police, etc. Anything you can think of, he says, will go up by 15%. So on the other hand, you'll also have a 15% savings on the infrastructure. So what's really interesting to me is that according to his research, this 15% rule is exclusive of cultural difference. So it holds true whether you're talking about a city in Japan or Java. It holds true whether you're talking about a first world economy or a third world economy. West's conclusion is that something universal is going on. The universality is us, that we are the city. And West doesn't mean this statement at all metaphorically or lyrically. He means it quite literally. Today's story, on the other hand, contrasts the concepts of individual versus city in a much different way. And while West's TED Talk has nothing directly to do with today's story, I do think it makes an interesting lens through which to view the author's dreamlike take on self-identity, cityhood, and exploration. So I'll post a link to the talk in the comments section on the forum, and you can judge for yourself. Author Benjanoon Sriduankau is a finalist for the Campbell Award for Best New Writer. Her debut urban fantasy novella Scale Bright is out now from Immersion Press. And you can find her online at bekian.wordpress.com, and that's spelled B-E-E-K-I-A-N dot wordpress.com, or on Twitter at bees, B-E-E-S underscore ja, J-A. The story is read by Amal El-Motar, who has not only graced us with many of her own stories, most recently her podcastle miniature number 78, Wing, back in January, but is a frequent narrator as well. She recently expanded her repertoire into the criminally underserved genre of space unicorn limericks, and you can see evidence of this for yourself if you head over to her website, amalelmotar.com, um, no spaces, or on Twitter where her handle is Tiffany. 
Enjoy the story. Zerakwesh in Absentia by Benjamin Sidung Keo. In the city of Zerakwesh, each shadow is the shape of candlelight held still. A citizen leaving the comfort of roof and walls can expect to attract several hauntings at every corner turned. Such ghosts may be shed only under the light of anglerfish refracted through a prism. Most households keep at least one about. The hunter has armed herself with a calligraphic blade refined in the stomachs of freedom fighters and a gun whose bullets invert probability. It is the second upon which she most depends, though it fires under only very particular conditions in a unique location. But that is all right, for her purpose is singular. Neither is it a weapon of blunt force, for manipulating potential is a subtle art. Everything has to align just right. The chamber contains two bullets, no more. For the moment, she uses the blade, which spills couplets and proverbs so ancient they will cut through any armor and slice apart iron as easily as paper. That is how she makes an entrance for herself through the ziggurat walls, in negation of propriety, law, and good sense. But she is used to having her way. The percussion of her footfalls lends surety to her path, and the firebrand of her blade keeps the hauntings at bay. She climbs spirals, steps across roofs on which stone phoenixes and kirin nest, pushes through window panes in which faces not her own are reflected. She comes to a door, on whose panel nothing is written other than the ten cardinal points illustrated in blue-bottle paint. She does not unsheath her sword of poetry. There are courtesies to observe, a transaction to make. One knock and she has admittance. The office is festooned in calcified regrets, furnished by worn furniture, and a lone tank, home to a stunted anglerfish whose light can barely disperse a tenth of a ghost. Fronds of drowned ambition sway in the black waters, framing the gleam of a jaundiced esca. At the desk, a woman sits, she has a smoker's teeth, stained the same shade as the anglerfish's lure. Her dress is typical of her trade, vest and stiff collars, a long jacket with split sleeves. They are of the same colour as Zerakwesh's pavements, save for the metal accents which tell of frost and a winter that never comes. Detective, the hunter says. I don't see very many clients. The detective leaves it ambiguous whether she means not many seek her or whether she, being exclusive, refuses to see but a select few. Lieutenant Hesrain. I didn't tell you my name. Why take up a profession like mine if I couldn't read something as simple as people's names? In any case, I'm surprised you are here. You enforce law, or at least power, in a city other than this one. To see you come all the way here into my office especially necessitates that I admit shock. You're the best private eye in the region, and there's a case I can't solve. 
The detective sets her hand to her shoulder, inclines her head in an almost salute. What a thing to hear from someone like you. What could it possibly involve to defeat you and your colleagues? It involves, Lieutenant Hesterain says, a missing person. Possibility is not the same as probability. This is a simple truth, embroidered by nothing beyond the pearl of self-evidence. A sun may not set a sphere of flame and rise a bat of seaweed and oyster shell. Great sharks and women may not make children together. Neither may tigers and turtles. They are impossibilities. The probability of these events is zero. But sometimes a thing becomes another, by process mundane or strange, unlikely or inevitable. An egg becomes a chick, becomes a bird. A village grows into a town, into a city. Too many new parts are added, too much new mass. It may not be reabsorbed and, generally, a bird does not turn back into an egg. Barring great disasters, cities do not revert into villages. There are, however, precedents. Where precedents exist, a thing turns from impossible into merely improbable. Yet, the probability is so low, the measurement of it becomes, for all practical purposes, pointless. Consider humans who turn into beasts and concepts at certain times. The turn of the season, the light of a crescent moon made red by revolution, the passage of wind created by a storm of flying fish. There are many kinds of transformations and many sorts of reversals. The detective is attended by moths. Their spindly bodies are painted or tattooed onto her arms. Their disembodied antennae wrap her wrists. She wears gloves that appear to be grey fabric at first glance, but up close it is apparent that they are wings, brachiated and patterned, skulls and eyes. An obvious question comes to Lieutenant Hesrein, but she refrains from the asking of it. She knows the detective's name, too, but does not utter that, either. She means to stay in the other woman's good graces, and that requires the utilization of tact. Instead, she says, Do you know the origins of Zerakwesh? There are speculations as numerous as sand in a desert. Some say the city rose from the depths of the Cotillion Sea, where it was inhabited by dreaming gods that wore anglerfish forms. Others say that it is the repository of several civilizations worth of nightmares. Still more insist that the city is a mass grave, hiding the dead that will one day rise and drain the blood of us all. The ideas all sound plausible, and I give each no more or less weight than any other. The detective takes the lead as they descend a series of banisters arranged like ribs. Are you a student of urban spaces? Architecture is nice enough. Hesrein takes hold of a dangling curtain to lever herself. But I much prefer an open sky. Claustrophobic. A sound of insect wings fluttering, though none cling to the rare streetlights. 
There is an absence of vermin here. No rats or roaches, no owls or stray dogs breaking the silence of the dark. Not at all. But where streets narrow and grow more crooks than parallel lines, crime inexorably breeds. You've been fairly polite to me. I hope you'll stay that way. Anything to solve a case, Hesrein says, wrote. Have I given you a description? The woman is young. She is waifish, with eyes that are both innocent and haunted. Her hands are soft and giving. She asks nothing for the comfort she provides. Not sexual, of course. She's purer than that, more spiritual. But it could be. In general, she is very mysterious. The lieutenant might have smiled. In a face like hers, in shadows like those of Zarakwesh, it is difficult to tell. She was last seen in a temple devoted to the worship of candlelight. Oh, yes. Very popular for wispy young things. Candlelight's symbolic of girlish years. The detective's voice has achieved a sultry contralto. A smoke, officer? No, thank you. I don't indulge on duty. <laughs> a throaty laugh, and perhaps she is no detective at all, but a woman masquerading as one. The sort of woman who has a cigarette in one hand and a beckoning finger in the other. She might wear a sleek dress, boast silk slippers that glisten with pearls, paint her nails the fierce red of fox fur. But the moment passes, and the detective's voice becomes, again, scratchy. Just as well. These things don't come easily around here. Lack of supply, lack of anything like a functioning economy. She lights a match, something else. There's a flame more blue than yellow. It is gone, and the cloying smell of a vice rises, more exquisite by far than tobacco, sweet and complicated. Who wants her back, Lieutenant? A man, or perhaps nobody. Isn't that always the case? They take a turn down an alleyway thick with hauntings, so much they gather in ankle-deep puddles. Neither woman is bothered. What did you do before you became an officer? Not much. And what did you do? I am a detective. I've gone after cheating spouses, forged wills, murders, suicides. Those latter two are the things we make our names on, aren't they? the misfortunes of others, and sacrifice to our reputation. Something like that, Hesrein murmurs. This doesn't look like a temple. It isn't. It is a restaurant. The detective holds the door open. The law first. The restaurant is warm and orange with paper lanterns. Noises of cooking though the tables are laden with emptiness. Diners make apparent conversation until one listens closely to discover they are not speaking any recognizable language. If there is a syntax, it is not evident, for their words do not vary in length, syllable, or consonant. 
Perhaps it is one sentence repeated endlessly, passing from mouth to mouth. To a one, they are hostile, clutching close their rice cups, their liquor bowls. The proprietress approaches. She is scarred, lined, and she carries herself as though her body is a weapon for her mind to wield, all heft and force, precisely applied. Detective, she says. We're looking for a young woman. She would be foreign. I know her well, the proprietor intones. She listens to your troubles, brings out the best in you. And said Quesh, the moral best of anyone, doesn't much rise above the pits of depravity anywhere else. The detective glances at Hesrein, wry. What can you tell us about her? Has she turned up here lately? The detective interrogates. The officer looms. It does not matter what is said and what information is given. Once the process is set in motion, the specifics are irrelevant. They question a broker, a nurse, a zoologist. All are in agreement that the missing woman plays the zither with surpassing excellence and sings with the voice of a goddess. Her personal effects have been distributed to many hands, owning, apparently, to the lady's generosity, and Hesrein collects them meticulously. There is a tortoiseshell comb, a coral earring, an empty locket made from the melted shells of spent bullets. This last item captivates Hesrein, who examines it from every angle, callous thumb measuring the hollow place where some precious item should have been. Information safely tucked away like parasols, they leave the restaurant. Out on the streets, the night has deepened. They mark their path with the words of brokers, nurses, zoologists. They are scattered like pebbles, like teeth. Are you familiar with demon stories, Lieutenant? Shapeshifters. Hesrein's glance skims. Inevitably, over the moths on the detective's skin. Tattoos, or something else. A touch would tell. She does not reach. Yes, and people cursed into shapes by demons or witches, or the crossing of circumstances. The detective shuts the temple's gate behind them. Candle flame burns in circles, slanted into the ten cardinal directions or arrayed after constellations. The keeper, who paints lions blue, the cup holder of a thousand halls, the poet drinking cactus nectar. Praying rugs spread between each grouping of candles, unstained and unblemished by oil or melted residue. No other worshipper is at hand though in the latticed alcoves the priests may be glimpsed. Their faces are hidden behind masks of blue flame and beeswax. To a one, they are as still as the candlelight, as quiet as the indigo creases of architecture where sound does not penetrate. Neither detective nor officer speaks to the priests. This close, they do not need direction. Engaged as they are, they do not require permission. They reach the end of the hall where the original candle, said to be exhumed from the world's core, 
stands, immense and blue-flamed, never swaying. Its heat is that of a small sun. The lattices open without sound, and the priests emerge. There is a curious uniformity to how they move, and Hesrein thinks that they do not breathe. Their shadows fracture the light. Stanzas rend open their robes, and the blunt force of anthems crack apart their masks. They fall. More come from ceiling and corners, from the interstices between candles. The detective runs, and Hesrein follows, up steps which spiral conch shell. Shoot them! the detective advises. No. Hesrein presses her free hand to the pistol, snug and secure in its holster. Not for that. What is a gun for? But the detective spares no further breath on the discourse of firearms. Though the priests lag behind them, there is always the murmur of fabric and masks. The steps grow wide and steep sometimes rough carpet, sometimes moss-covered wood. Once it is ice, though neither woman slips. At the end of the steps there is silence, and a long corridor stretching before them, walled by wax figures in states of bloom and dissolution. The further the detective moves through the hallway, the louder grows the sound of insect wings. At the end of the corridor, there is a portrait. It is that of a young woman. Wayfish, immense eyes, graceful fingers built for instruments of eloquence and melody. Well, the detective says, turning to Hasrain, we have found her. So we have. The case is essentially solved. The officer nods and draws her gun. It is no time at all between its exit from leather and the pulling of its trigger. The chamber houses two bullets, and these are divided fairly, one for the detective, another for the portrait. Gunshots can be explosive, these, being indeed very specific in their purpose, are soft the sound of fabrics rustling, of footsteps echoes chasing ghosts, a flurry of wings and antennae, a spray of arterial blood that is no color at all. Those struck by misfortune may be forced into a shape not their own, perhaps a moth, perhaps a bird, fragile, short-lived things, they are not the only shapes, and sometimes the purpose is not to diminish, but to rob the target of memory, of identity, to spread her so thin she may not remember herself, stretching her out across distorted roofs and blackened window panes, burying her beneath the gnarled roots of houses, pressing her into the cracks of walls. A reversal can be effected, but the probability of it is so low, the event is considered an impossibility. Women who have become cities do not turn back. There is so much to reabsorb. Temples and restaurants, houses and aquariums, 
that they can't possibly all fit into a single woman, or even a dozen. A hundred women may not contain a city, perhaps not even a thousand. One woman, however, may hold a multitude of selves, a self for fighting, a self for thinking, a self to hide and a self to seek. Perhaps she has split as contingency against a prolonged fugue state. Perhaps she multiplied unconsciously, standing before the mirrors of her dreams. It is useful to have this capability when one does not look for or expect rescue from an external source. The city once called Zarakwesh stands empty. Where heat touches, a twist of steam rises, smelling of defeat. Away from shadow, the material appears to be bleached bone, brittle and carved into an approximation of architecture. There are stairs that curl in upon themselves. There are windows that show nothing at all, and streets no longer than the length of an arm. Some houses contain chairs, but these too are crudely made, given the requisite legs and armrests, the suggestions of furniture, as of stage props. It does not appear anyone has ever lived here. There are two women atop Zedekwesh's highest roof, facing off as though in a duel. Shreds of canvas lie at their feet, blank, but for splats of paint which might have been wings or an impression of a face. In a portrait so torn, in a day so bright, it is difficult to tell. One woman is flesh, the other not. Neither may be described as wayfish or reassuring. Neither possesses eyes which are haunted or comforting. There's a certain resemblance between them, insofar as brass limbs and stone skull may resemble the skin counterpart. A heft to their frames, the way they carry themselves as though they are a weapon for the mind to be wielded. But one no longer moves. Her features are chiseled roughly to hint at eyes, nose, mouth. At their feet lie a fine pistol, a blade of verses, a locket made of spent shells. The woman of flesh, who calls herself Zerakwesh, and who might have been born named Hasrain, picks them up. They are hers by right. She blinks rapidly. It's been a long time since she saw the sun. She brushes away the ashes on her clothes and holds her hand over her breast briefly, the way one might clutch at a wound. It's phantom. She does not bleed. The ziggurat walls crumble to ashes the shade of blue-bottle beetles. Zerakwesh steps over them and out. And welcome back. 
I hope you enjoyed that story, and I, I hope you can kind of see why I thought the TED Talk made such a fascinating bookend for it. Um, while the idea of a city as a living creature or an individual as an avatar for a city, that's nothing new, um, those ideas are usually treated as metaphor or fable. However, I think West's talk allows us to kind of look at today's story in a different way through a more scientific or sociological lens. Maybe you agree, maybe you disagree. Head on over to the forum, uh, forum.escapeartists.net, and tell me what you think. Speaking of the forums, feedback this week is for Podcastle number 321, Paya Nack, which is also by Benjanoon. Um, this story generated a lot of discussion, as I'm sure today's will as well. Um, most commenters agreed that there was a lot more to the story than met the eye. A couple of commenters found the story challenging and hard to follow at times. Uh, but one commenter in particular, Spare Inch, seemed to really engage strongly with the story, seeing it as perhaps a metaphor for coming out of the closet. Some people will accept you for who you really are, but there are always those who, almost literally, won't see the real you. Anyway, great comments on that story. And, you know, whether you really like a story or you really don't, your comments and discussion are always valuable to the editors, to the authors, and even to other listeners who, you know, are just interested in finding out what other people thought. And as always, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Every crimped farthing goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcast going so we can continue to bring you the best in fantasy fiction week after week. And so on behalf of everyone here at PodCastle, LaShawn Wanek, Graham Dunlop, Anna Schwind, and Dave Thompson, thank you for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with another one that will delight, perplex, and bedevil you. Until then, this is M.K. Hobson for PodCastle, leaving you with, instead of a quote, a statistic from the TED Talk I referenced earlier. For the foreseeable future, until 2050... More than a million people every week will be added to our cities. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. <laughs>